Hello and welcome back to another round of bendability with me, Emmett Lewis, the Splits Wizard. I would like to say greetings to all you range seekers out there. I know it has been a while since I have done a podcast, but I have been incredibly busy in the background. I'm sure some of you who listen to Hansandcast or Fellowship of Range know some of the story, but the background is I've done all the adult things in the world in one year. So we bought a house that needed some work and we've done the work. Uh, we had a baby, our first baby, so anyone who has a kid knows that is an experience well worth having, but uh, yeah, it took up some time. Uh, got a car, got a dog, yeah, basically everything in one year, as well as trying to release our courses and a lot of stuff in the background, as well as training with coaches and other stuff. So yeah, I have been fucking swamped this year, but things are beginning to calm down, so bendability was... Unfortunately, it was the first thing that had to go because it was such a time sink in terms of actual thing, even though you don't think about it when you see the product. And now it is back because I have more time. I am out of the sleep deprivation zone of uh, first child in. Yeah, first childing, first children, first child. Yes, anyway, uh, yeah, I don't know. Anyone who's had a baby knows, uh, yeah, you know. Wanted to take some time off as well, spend some time with the wife and kid and get to know this new creature, so it was very rewarding. Uh, other than that, let's kind of get on to it. So today, I'm going to stray slightly away from training, but we're going to look at meta-training systems and underpinnings to what we actually do. A lot of this is actually the rationale, the design rationale behind the courses we've made, though... You may think, oh, it's just another course. There's actually quite a deep philosophy in what we do because there is a certain journey I'm trying to bring people on. And this journey is facilitated by a thing called human-centered design, as well as what we use is a meta-framework called activity theory. Now, when we're doing these ideas of courses and education things, and, you know, everything we've really done is just a bit of background. I have a master's in design thinking, uh, entrepreneurship and innovation. So a lot of this is informed by the courses I took in University College Dublin when I went back and was like, oh, I need to do something with my life now that I have, yeah, I just, you know, whatever. I had a bit of a break when I moved back from London and I needed to do a course. So I've done something a bit more involved. And in this course, we learned a thing called human-centered design. Now, human-centered design was formulated via basic Stanford Design School is where it originates. And then the place you're probably most familiar with is there's a company called IDEO, and they do a huge amount of design. They do a lot of design for Apple. They invented the first Apple Mac or uh, mouses and other stuff. They've also invented a huge amount of children's toys and other stuff, other products that you would be familiar with. So a lot of our stuff in our faculty was affiliated with Stanford Design School as well as IDEO and using their frameworks and learning how to put their frameworks into use. Human-centered design is very interesting because it is at the it is an iterative process that we we start and then we basically We'll go through the process and then we'll come to our solution and then we see our solution and we go through the process again and again and again. This is, the reason I'm talking about this today actually more so than anything else is a lot of people will be doing a lot of this unconsciously and they would be kind of going through it. Whereas if we have a formal process, we understand that at each stage we will have a, a methodology and a way of optimizing that process that we can actually go, oh, how does this actually work? Now, I'm going to read the ISO standards for human-centered design, just so we have the formal definition of it, and then I'll talk about how the process actually works. So here it is, formal de definition from Wikipedia. Human-centered design is an approach to interactive systems development that aims to make systems usable and more useful by focusing on the users, their needs and requirements. By applying human factors slash ergonomics and usability knowledge and techniques. This approach enhances effectiveness and efficiency, improves human well-being, user satisfaction, accessibility and sustainability, and counteracts possible adverse effects of use on human health, safety and performance. Now, that is basically 
the formal definition. Uh, it doesn't sound too sexy, but when we get into the actual usage of the system, that's when it gets actually very sexy. So human-centered design, when we start the process, now I'd advise you to have a bit of a Google and look up some of the pictures of this. And we can see that there is generally a circular circular graph that we will go through. Now, some people would define this in three stages. Some people would define it in five stages. Uh, you know, other stuff like that, that we, there's different ways of going about it. Everyone kind of has their own approach. I'm going to be using a five-stage process today just to illustrate the points. And it starts, the very first bit of this is empathy what we would call the foundations of kind of anthropology as well in this process where we would start to by defining a user and something a problem they're having and we would look at this problem or it could be something that they're already using what is their current solution to their problem or their current use now it's always defined in terms of problems and personally i don't always think it's a problem basis but they have something they need to achieve and this is where we start looking at activity theory afterwards and this will give us a bit more of a concept to this but we'd start defining a group of people and they have a problem or task they want to achieve and we need to put ourselves in the role of an anthropologist. We need to observe these people. We need to find out what their story is. Like, why are they doing what they're doing and using the thing they're using to achieve the thing they want to do? Then we also want to look at, like, how does this actually solution work? How does it work for our defined user group? Is, it, is the solution a solution that was actually tailored to women aged 35 to 45 with a job and kids? And then someone aged, I don't know, 18 is trying to apply this and they're not in the same same social strata. And the solution doesn't actually, it works, but it's not the ideal solution for them. So this is our idea of defining who is using it and getting their story and how it actually works for them. This is kind of interesting because if we think about in, say, fitness industry usage, a lot of the fitness industry concepts and other stuff are applied via people who are immersed in the fitness industry and they're trying to you know provide a solution that goes hey you are a trainer who lives for training and you should do this and we see this say in movement I was just discussing this with my apprentices over the last couple of days where we had someone coming who wanted to add the training with m3 the online training where it's quite involved on top of you know doing 12 sessions a week with their coach already and they also, when we looked at their life stuff, I can't remember exactly how I didn't do the interview with them, but someone else did. But when we're looking, I was like, this person is a busy person. We're giving someone a solution of someone who just lives and breathes for training. It's not the right solution. It's a good solution for some people, but it's the terrible solution for other people. And You know, we have, as coaches, we have encountered this a lot where someone might come to us and go, I'm doing a program and I just can't do it. I'm you know, I've had this so much with people coming from sort of more movement culture training where they're doing, you know, 10 to 15 sessions a week and they're not getting results because they're just doing too much. And they also have a busy physical job on top of this. And then you go, well, actually, maybe the five sessions a week is what you need. So this is the kind of sense making that we want. It's like we want to make sense and empathize with their users and what their actual needs are. This is one that we can do it by observation. We can observe people in the field using the solution and what results they're getting for it. We could also put ourselves into the role and take part more like an actor and immerse ourselves in this and see how it actually works for us. Now, obviously, we have our own biases and we need to do this. Generally, when we're doing this is working as a team because if we have a team that has quite a big spread in the social strata, we get a lot more input and a lot more concepts that we need to think about that we mightn't think about, you know, myself, I'm a male, age 40, who has basically always worked in the fitness or in circus industry. You know, for me to empathize with someone in an office role, now I have an office job now, basically, which most want to do, but before that, it was very difficult. It was not something that made sense. A lot of advice I would give people would be terrible. You know, if I think back 10, 15 years ago when I was first training people, it was, you know, it was you know, for some people, the advice was great. Some people, the advice was fucking terrible because I couldn't empathy, empathize with how their lives worked. So 
once we have got our empathy done, and that's a process that we'll come back to and we'll understand and we have to gather data, photo, video, interviews. There's a lot of ways we can gather this data as well. Then we actually need to define what our problem or what this user's group problem actually is and how it how the solution works for them. We need to make sense of this. We need to actually get a clear definition of like, what are we actually trying to solve here? What are we trying to do? What is, how are they using it? How is it actually working for them? Could it be done better? And that gives us our definition. Now, once we have the problem design defined, that's when we move on to a stage called ideation. Ideation is basically an amalgam, a portmanteau, when you combine two words, I think so, of when we want to have an idea and creation. This is an interesting thing because the process we learned was a process called space saturation, where when we're working in a team, we would have a board and we would basically get uh, post-its. And we put like one, one word or one sentence on a post-it and just ideas of like things that we could put together that would solve this problem. You just put them up. And ideation and creation is an interesting phase because at that phase, we need to get rid of criticism for ourselves. We need to essentially brainstorm and get rid of that. No, this won't work. So anything can go. We basically, everything we can think of will come onto this. And we want to basically come up with this, put things down. doesn't matter how wild it is because this is the creative phase. It can be wild. It can be anything that you want. We want to get ideas from other fields. We want to even involve the user in it and just go, you know, what do you think? Give me some ideas. What would be your fantasy? What would be your wildest creation? Get them down. We could also look at what is being solved and go, oh, well, let's you know, add more into it. Let's look at the solution. Let's take the solution and take the good bits of it and enhance them or, you know, anything. And this is, all these phases when we're making something, we could define a time limit on them as well. So we could do this as a, say, the five-step process we're doing today. We could do it in one day each phase. So we have one day. We could do it even much longer particularly when it comes to prototyping and all this stuff, because, you know, some stuff we can rapidly prototype, some stuff we're making, like, a new engineering product. It could be, you know, massive, or, you know, take months to make a prototype, that kind of thing. So we have to get into our time limits on this and just go, okay, we have to have basically a bell that gets rung, and this is the end of the ideation phase. Ideation is one of these things that is difficult for a lot of people, particularly when you're coming from this idea of like, I have to have a good idea, I have to have a good answer. And a lot of people get this, don't get this idea. And I come, you know, even in performing, it came quite straightforward to me because we've done a lot of improvising and we would improvise and we have to get rid of that judgment at this stage. Once we have done this ideation phase, we come up with go, okay, what is we have to go, we have to make a selection process. So basically in this, if you're working in a team, people would vote and we'd go, we're trying to narrow down to four things we're trying to combine or two things or one thing or 10 things we're gonna put into this thing to solve the needs of the people. Now our ideation obviously based on our empathy and our definition. So once we come to the selection stage, we would choose our ideas and we would put them forward for prototyping. And this is what we would make as our prototype as either a device, a service, a it could even be down for public policy, this kind of idea, what it could look like. So when we're making a prototype, this is where things get interesting because eventually sometimes we might find that some of our selections mightn't work together, there might be a clash, or that they would work together, or we might implement them the way we could have thought in the ideation phase. So eventually we will make a prototype. Well, once we have made this prototype, then we have to go back to our defined user group and give them the prototype and go, here, play with this, give us your feedback. And they would go and use it. And then we would be back to our empathy stage where we're now observing the people, 
using our solution and seeing is our solution better or does it solve the problem of our defined user grouping better than what we would be uh, thinking what they were currently using. And then once we have that, we could repeat this process, go through our definition, ideation, prototyping, testing. We could also loop back on these phases as well. This is the kind of more interesting thing that we could go from, you know, prototyping to test to prototyping to test, blah, 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 and repeat all of this. This is basically a quick overview of the human-centered design process. And we can look at it in terms of like, oh, say how we look at things in the M3 courses. We've done our empathy and go, okay, what do people not know? They don't understand the concepts and the techniques and the principles behind what we do, more so than they have a selection of exercises. So we made that a priority and gave people a lot of uh, information in all our courses straight away, rather than sort of piecemealing it out. Then the ideation phase, you know, we are still actually going through this because we're putting in more and more things as we're beginning to get our feedback. So we've prototyped our courses. We have the courses out there. And now we've gotten feedback from some coaches. We've asked specifically for feedback, the user interaction with the system. We have now gone back to the ideation and we're adding more and more stuff in to the courses to make them more usable. And that's kind of the process that underpins a lot of the designs. This same thing comes around as like how I defied, decide to do YouTube videos and other stuff that I would basically, you know, find what are people having problems with? What are they interested in? What did they not have information on? Okay, I'll look at that. I'll see what the problem is. Okay, then I've defined what they don't have information on. Ideate, how can I give a solution or a video that makes sense? Make the video, put it out there test it, see how people are using it, and back in. So it's an interesting process because if we think about these kind of meta frameworks and other stuff, it's like a lot of people I've just said this to, they go, oh yeah, that makes sense. That's what I'm already doing. And this is what we're already doing, but we're just trying to formalize what this is. This is one of the bigger concepts, I think, on a lot of these meta frameworks is we're making the invisible visible. We're making these common processes that we would use in our day-to-day -day training or interaction with a human as a service provider and making them visible. Then at each stage that we have made our process visible, we can go, oh, how is this process actually working? How is there a bit of the process, process that I'm missing or that I haven't given enough um, thinking to? And a lot of, say, at the stage in the design thinking process is the ideation phase to the prototyping phase. They become blurry for a lot of people that they're trying to make a prototype at the same time they're trying to ideate. Whereas we want to get that creative process separated from the other creative process. So we have a meta creative process where we're trying to make a big cloud of things that we can draw from. Then we would go through a selection process where we would narrow the cloud down because we can't do everything. We don't want a Swiss army knife. We want a refined solution. And that goes into our prototyping. We see how well that works. Whereas a lot of the times we find that we're trying to make something at the same time as prototype something. Hope that makes sense. So the other thing I want to talk to the, about today in our meta framework idea is a thing called activity theory. Now, activity theory is generally occurs most in the social sciences. And this is kind of interesting because if we think about training, it is almost a social science rather than a pure science, particularly when we're in it and when we're actually training people. Like we can say the sports science where, you know, I have my own critiques of that, as I've said over. And we can also think of, it has a theory underpinning this. Now, I remember my first introduction to activity theory was, I don't know, a while ago anyway. And I was just talking to a friend of mine who is a professor in a learning technologies in Dublin City University here. And I was telling him about how I, how I train people. And he said, oh, you know what you're describing there? It's activity theory. I was like, what's this? And he's like, well, he gave me an overview of it. I go, oh, interesting. I hadn't heard about it because, you know, me coming from a more sciencey background was like, oh, social sciences, Ugh, it's not actual real science. But then, you know, when I think about training, training isn't a real science. It's an art form with opinions that are trying to be justified. So 
Activity theory, we can look up on Wikipedia just what is activity theory, blah, blah, blah. But I'm going to give you an idea. So let's see. I'm going to give you a definition here from Wikipedia, and then you can go look that up yourself. Activity theory is more of a descriptive meta-theory or framework than a predictive theory. It considers an entire work activity system, including teams, organizations, beyond just one actor or user. It accounts for environment, history of the person, culture, role of the artifact, motivation. Artifact here could be used as tools, is another way of doing it. Motivation and complexity of real-life activities. One of the strengths of activity theory is that it bridges the gap between the individual subject and the social reality. It studies both through the mediating activity. This is an object-orientated theory. It's different from object-orientated programming, where if we look up, if you go onto Google, you will see that there is generally activity theory is recommended or illustrated by use of a triangle, an equilateral triangle. The triangle will be defined by seven points where we have an outcome, where we have rules, subjects, instruments, or artifacts or tools, object, community, division of labor, and that is what gives us our outcome. Now, this is one of the more interesting things because we use this a lot in what we're training people in the background and how to use courses and how we work with people because it gives us a point where we can begin to look at each point and understand if we don't get the outcome we want, it is because there is a breakdown in some of the areas, some of the list I've just given you. And if we can fix that breakdown or enhance it, then we will get our outcome. So at the very first thing, we have the subject. The subject is the person using the tool, instrument, or artifact on the object. Now, this is where things get interesting because in a training background, the subject is also the object, and the subject is also the outcome or the thing getting the outcome. So we could almost define them on a straight line point and change the activity theory graph, but that will come later. Probably look at that in my PhD. But anyway, so subject. The very first thing is who are we talking to? Who is the subject? Okay, who is the user of the system? What are they doing? How can we define this person? And how can we define where they are? And how can we define what is the outcome they are desirous when they're entering into this training relationship? or training zone, or training. So the very first thing is like, okay, we need to look at this person and go, who are you? Okay, I am blah, define it. This may use user empathy. Uh, I define them. What is their outcome? Where are they in relation to the outcome? Or what stage of the process are they at? What do they actually want to do? The outcome and this empathy process is because people will say one thing, but when we actually get to why they want to do something or what their desired outcome is, it cannot actually be that. It's like, oh, we have someone's classic one who comes to us. Hey, I want splits and pancake. Okay, cool. Why do you want splits and pancake? Oh, you know, I really want to just be able to play with my kids and chase them around and pick them up from the floor and, you know. Okay, maybe you don't need splits. Maybe you need a little bit of splits more tools and systems to get you moving and feeling better and able to you know navigate space better so maybe what you actually want is something slightly different but it will give you the outcome you want so this is our empathy and putting ourselves into a role of the subject and their outcome and figuring out what they actually need to do generally we think about this in the three w's or the five w's of who am i speaking to what do they want to do? Where are their relation to the goal? Uh, where are they going to do the training? And what are they willing to give up to actually achieve their results? If we think about the advice we would give, the classic example I always use is a 17-year-old who wants to go to circuit school and needs to do all those things versus a 45-year-old guy who... You know, both think they want better splits, but they have different reasons for getting them. And what 
So that gives our first thing. It's like, where are they in relation to the goal? So this would be our physical assessment system. So it's like, what is their actual goal? We have to know this first. And what is and where are they in relation to that? It's like, oh, okay, I need, I'm my 17-year-old to get into circuit school. I need flat splits. And my split is 10 centimeters off the ground. And I can do that for 20 seconds. Okay, that gives us a definition. My person who is 45, it's like, I'm nowhere near splits. I can barely hold a horse stance. But they don't actually need splits to just think they do because that's you know a projection into the future of what they think they might feel like if they could do split. Okay, we can define that. Um, what to do, want to do, and then where in relation to goal. Uh, where will the training take place? This is the other thing that we want to get into. This gives us a bit of our hint of our community aspect of the community aspect of the graph, which we'll come to in a bit. But it, you know, the where the training is going to take place also gives us an idea of like what equipment would we have, what stuff do we have to mentally prepare, and what instruments and artifacts are available to us in this space that we can go. Oh, I want to train at home. I can only train at home. Okay, that's fine. And you know, uh, or I have a full gym, or I want to train in the park. Blah blah blah. This gives us an idea. And then, what are they willing to give up? what is this person willing to give up in their life to make space for this training and for this process? Oh, you know, the classic one of like, I want to get ripped. Great. Are you willing to give up not weighing your food? No, I hate weighing my food. I'm not going to do it. Are you willing to give up not tracking? Are you willing to give up some beer for a while? Are you willing to give up late nights? You know, these things are very useful to know because this gives us an idea of like what our intervention could be. And if we don't actually know what this person is willing to actually give up to achieve their goals, now it doesn't have to be everything's giving up and willing to give up is, you know, oh, and giving something up. It's like, yes, this is what we do as trainers. We narrow choices for people. We go, well, this is what you, this is where you are in relation to your goal. And this is what it's going to do. Are you willing to give up a long time it's like i'm 20 kilos overweight and i need to you know oh so it's going to take 40 weeks you know give or take to lose all that weight if we're thinking like a pound a week so are you willing to give up a lot of things along the way or what are they willing i'm not willing to give up you know all these weddings i have to go to during summer okay cool we need to account for that i'm not willing to give up for uh my nights out with my company where I have to go do that. I had once train trainee, trainer or trainee that I was training many years ago in London, who worked as a what did he work as? He worked as client relationships for one of the big banks there, which essentially meant that whenever all these super rich people came into town, he was the guy who had to bring them out, get them pissed, bring them to restaurants, get them strippers, hook them up with Coke if they wanted it, all these kind of things that you're that you would do and then convince them to give the bank money. Or he'd be there with the sales manager, but he was the guy who was like, you know, problem, you got a problem when you're in town, call me, I'll sort it out, you need a better hotel, bam, tickets, blah. But he had to go out four or five nights a week with these people and stay out late. He wasn't willing to give it up because it was his job. So our solution to his problem had to account for that. Whereas if someone else was coming to me going, I eat out four nights a week and I go to restaurants and I order food in, it's like, oh, well, you know, do you have to do this or could we cook some food? Are you willing to give up your takeaways and your Deliveroo and your Uber Eats and all that? Okay, maybe I am if we have a solution. So we have to understand that. So our subject, because they're also the object, the training is happening on them and happening on their body and on their mind. So if we were to look at our triangle, and I hope you have pulled one up so you can see what I'm talking about, we go subject and object. What is this person's body we were working on have we defined it so we've defined it a bit in relation to the goal but the object also has its daily daily variance can we account for that and what is going on you know some days you feel great some days you feel shit that classic thing i always talk about on workouts like one you know one out of ten would be amazing and two out of ten will be shit and seven out of ten will just be go in and your object is operating uh effectively but neither good nor bad it is just operating at the same time we have to account for things like injuries limitations of the object so what can it can what can it and can't it do what is the level of body awareness and control that this person has now this feeds into our instruments which we'll talk about in a moment 
And how can we actually get an accurate definition of the object and the things that are being acted upon on this object to get our outcome? So these will also go into our other systems, other things on the intervention we would give. Now, mediating between the subject and object is we have the instruments, artifacts, or tools. Now, in a training environment, we have the idea that our tools is our exercises, but also the the things which affect an outcome or mediate an outcome, or hopefully between the subject, the object, and the outcome. So we can think of the instruments. So first, we have the body of the person could be considered an instrument in and of itself. Its capacities and capabilities will give us a list of things it can and cannot do. So once we have that, we can think about things like the internal instruments would be stuff like motor control. How skillful is this person at operating the instruments, uh, which is also the object, and which is also the subject getting complicated here, meta frameworks, I love them. Uh, So how is their internal instruments? What is their internal instrument? What is their sensory base? What is their sensory lexicon they can draw on to actually get some kind of change on the object or some outcome from the object? Do we need to educate them on how to actually control the body, how to work it? At the same time, we have the actual instruments, the physical external instruments, which are the equipment we'll be using. What equipment have we have? So we know from our community aspect and where the training will take place that we have instruments. We can use bars, weights, resistance, bands, setups. Do these people straight up just know how to use the instrument? Do they know how to set up a band setup for squats? And we give them band squats and go, I don't know how to do that. Okay, we need to educate them on that. Is their motor control, their internal instrument, able to take care of the stimulus to their object, which is their body? Or do they need more education on that? This is this use of the instruments is basically what we would think of as the feeding into the division of labor, which is the bottom corner of our triangle between the subject and the object, and us and also us as part of the community. So the division of labor in a training relationship is, I would say to the training subject, you will do the training, I will tell you what to do, I will instruct you on how to use the instruments, and I will assess the instruments. And then, that is my division of labor, that is my role in this environment. Your division of labor is you will count the reps, you will implement the training, and you will give me feedback based on how the training went for you. I will then take the role as the consultant and tell you and adjust the use of the instruments so the object gets a better outcome over time. And that having this clear idea of like, okay, you need to do the training, implement it as best you can, adhere to the program if you can, or if you can't, then you tell me, and then I will come up with some way that you will do it. And then this is the division of labor. Having this clear, because a lot of times in our training environments, particularly when we're working in a closer coaching relationship, the subject begins to take on the role of the coach or the trainee or the consultant in the environment. Now, in some cases, this is okay. You know, something wasn't available, so I used something else. That is fine. I didn't like exercises, so I just didn't do them. Well, can and then they don't tell you about it because they have made the choice and they have taken over that part of the division of labor. So we need to have a very clear defined division of labor of who makes the choices and who doesn't, or what choices can be left to the subject uh, to use on the object, and what choices can't. This, if we follow back along the bottom of our graph, we have community. In the community, we also have a division of labor, but we also have the idea of environment and training environment and training equipment. And, you know, this is one of the ones that I always find interesting as much as anything else is that if we are using the right tool with the right subject with the right division of labor but we're doing it in the wrong community and the community as it says is the environment now a simple example is like i want to make a knife using a hammer on an anvil and i'm going to put my anvil 
into the wrong environment, which is on a trampoline, I'm not going to be able to make my knife. Whereas if I was making my knife in a blacksmith forge, then I would be have the right environment for these things to take place. And this is one of the ones that feeds back into the subject and the object as well, because they exist in the community and in the environment. And we can think of like, oh, the classic one of like, I'm in, I don't know, I'm in a gym that doesn't have a good flexibility culture. It doesn't really, it's not really things people train and maybe people rip on it and think, oh, it's a bit weird. So then I want to go and do my stretching, but I'm scared and I feel a bit out of place and other stuff. So then the community puts a pressure on the subject and the object that has to be reconciled somehow. And this can lead to people skipping, a lot of people skip training over the years that I know, that just because they're doing it, they go, oh, don't want to stretch in the gym, it's just weird, no one does it. Doing splits is weird, no one does splits, so I just want to do it at home. That's okay, we can make an adjustments on that, but it also gives an idea that there can be an apprehension for people to do things. Whereas if we are looking at a community that has a good or strong flexibility culture, then people won't mind being weird. Kind of like, you know, if we think of, say say someone who wants to get flexible. If we look at, say, the average f- flexibility in a circus training space of, say, people who are on the tighter side of things, it is much higher than people in, say, a powerlifting gym who might be the same body type or f- uh, flexibility phenotype. But because there is more cultural value placed on the flexibility aspects of the training then there is more need to train it and more people will train it and there is more social pressure to be more flexible otherwise you will be out of place with your community so this provides us a pressure and we have to think about this and the pressure in the community also provides us reasons why or why not we might not do these things or have results one of the most interesting things i've seen recently was there's some study going around and where was it uh I'm not flexible. The results of it was like, I'm not flexible because I do powerlifting. I'm, you know, weight, weight training makes you more flexible. And moving through full range of motion makes you more flexible. And lifting weights is good at stretching. But at a certain level, you get tighter. But it's not the results of this study or the way someone interpreted it was that I'm, I'm not flexible because I train with weights. I'm not flexible because I'm jacked. I'm too jacked and I have too much muscle to be flexible. Now that will certainly provide a limitation at certain stages of having a lot of muscle can impede flexibility at certain points. But we can also look at, there's a lot of case examples of people who are super jacked and super flexible. Like that Kapu Lakukak, the big jacked guy who looks like a bear on Instagram, uh, who can do splits, has a bridge that's fucking fantastic, and other stuff. He's like, well, he's, I don't know, 150 kilos of pure fucking sexual Tyrannosaurus. Uh, he's more flexible than a lot of people. So we can't really say that. We could say it could be a limitation. We could look at weightlifters. There's a huge amount of weightlifters, and that's a great example of community that values flexibility because of the needs of the activity that are taking place in. So they would be more flexible. Weightlifters would be more flexible, whereas if we look at powerlifting, where sport is kind of defined by moving things through the minimum amount of range of motion possible while still legally passing the requirements of the lift, then we can see that uh, maybe that isn't the case. Maybe it's just a community pressure or there's no value or uh, social capital would be the term that we'd use in social sciences to give this. There's no social capital to being super flexible, so you don't want to be flexible. Whereas in other places or the community has an idea that becoming more flexible or stretching makes you weak and slow, so then the value on flexibility training is reduced because they don't think it has value or it will reduce from the outcome they're desired of doing. So these are the things that will go into it. At the same time, in the environment, we have the training environment itself as part of the community. Where does the training take place and where does the community gather? The environment also dictates what tools are available, and that feeds into our division of labor of deciding what tools and what tools and what instruments and artifacts we have to instruct the person on on how to use correctly. So that gives us that. At the same time, the larger environment of like, oh, I want to do my flexibility training, but it's minus four in the training space, and I can't get cold, and the floor, I can't get warm, and the floor is cold, and other stuff. 
this gives us an idea of like, okay, what instruments do we need to introduce to the space or how, what other instruments do we need to use? So, you know, oh, someone's really cold. Okay, can we instruct them to wear more clothes? Is it possible? You know, can is there limitations imposed that we can't surpass so we need to come up with a different community or environment to train in? This then goes into our bottom corner of the graph of the rules. What are the rules of the training environment? What are the rules of the tools? And what are the rules that we cannot violate to use? The rules also lie into conventions, guidelines, and implicit knowledge of the training environment that is implied that in some ways it is picked up. It can be implicit knowledge is kind of one of those interesting things because if we were to think about, say, squatting, so we've given someone the instrument of a squat on their subject, uh, we have to instruct them on that. But then there is the rules, like, okay, what is the conventions? Okay, is there a squat rack free? How do you negotiate the usage of a squat rack when there's only a limited amount of space? And how can we teach people the culture in the community? What are the rules of the community? How can we actually instruct people on that? You know, it's classic. It is, you know, coming into the 30th of January now, for those listening in the future, you know, we are at the January noob stage. And I actually really love this stage in the gym because when you go in, we see people are a bit lost. They don't know the rules and the guidelines and the conventions of the community. So they wander around the gym. They're not certain. They learn by doing. No one's written them down. No one's taken them aside, says you can and cannot do that. Whereas us in our division of labor, we could also say we are part of the community and we can also instruct these people on the rules. At the same time, there's a lot of implicit knowledge that, you know, that needs to be instructed in the use of the tools or the use of the environment. And these ideas and guidelines, they also feed into the subject because they need to know the rules and we need to instruct them on it. It also leads on how we might negotiate space, negotiate usage, how to actually select weight, how to tidy up a space, how to be a good user of the community, how to fit in with the community. These are one of the things that are kind of harder to define exactly unless you're in a certain space. You know, what's okay in one community is not okay in another. Uh, like I can remember, say, working in a gym you know, where CrossFit was just beginning to get really big. And there was a few people doing like full-on wads, bit of screaming, shouting, wrecking themselves. And I was like, yeah, it was a gym for hard work, but it's not really a place where you'll... You know, for better or worse, it's not really a place where doing like a 15, 20 minute wad at the end and then puking into the bin on the corner of the bin, then lying down in a pool of sweat on the floor, blocking the corridor is an acceptable activity in that space. No one has that on the rules of the gym, but it is implicit on that kind of type of gym where, you know, vomiting because you've pushed your anaerobic threshold too far, you know, and doing it every single day. It's not really the place for it. It's not really the community for it. People will think it's a bit weird. You know, I'm not saying it's not, you know, training-wise, whatever, we can argue on that, but it is one of these things that goes on. So then the rules act on the object as well, and this gives us our outcome. So we can think about what I've gone through here. If we give it a quick overview, we have subject, which is also the subject is the person, is we can almost define the subject as the thing inside the meat sack. The meat sack is the object, and that has a specific outcome for the meat sack wants to be able to do something that the, the, the ghost inside the meat sack wants to be able to do. This gives us a straight line across our triangle. We will use our instruments, tools, and artifacts, both internal and external, to mediate the effect on the object. This takes place inside a community, which gives us a social community and a social capital system to navigate, as well as a training environment where the tools exist. We need these things to be in alignment to get our outcome. The division of labor in the bottom corner will give us what is the, what is the assessment system taking place on the subject, both the physical and mental assessment, what is the subject going to do? How are they going to implement it? Are they going to implement the training? And what feedback are they going to give to the coach? 
and who is going to split this up you know we could even think of division of labor could go into the instruments it's like oh i'm training someone one-to-one and my division of labor as a coach is i will select the weight you will be using and put the weight on the bar while you're resting between sets and i will count the reps or you will count the reps and other stuff you'll count the reps and change the weight and i will play on my phone whatever the division of labor there is and this will be mediated onto the meat sack which is the object and the also the subject and then this will hopefully give us our outcome if we have taught the person what is acceptable to do in this training space as well as it is taking place in appropriate space so as you can see these meta frameworks can go quite big because if i look at this one single triangle this single triangle if i put myself into it would reply to one subject uh, with one outcome then myself as the trainer in the situation would have my own version of this activity theory where it would this triangle would begin to influence the other triangle and so on and so on and so on and even the community each point would actually have its own triangle of activity theory this is where it is a meta framework because it can define and give us places to you know even just think about what we are doing and then if we can think about it in more depth we can figure out why something isn't working or why it's not working and this is you know we could also look at this we could look at the activity theory of the communication between the client and the trainer we could look at the activity theory i've sort of outlined it as the exercises taking place and mediating the outcome we could look at it of like what is the activity theory of the community itself what is the triangle there so it gets very big and very fractal and very iterative and i really like this framework because once we have this framework we can begin to really narrow in what our interventions and training systems are at the same time if we don't get the outcome we want we know that the, one of the points has broken down that there is one point that we can split so rather than just going like oh it didn't work let's try something else we can actually go okay why didn't it work under these seven categories okay it didn't work because the the tool used the instrument or the artifact was the wrong tool for this person okay you now we can change the tool or the person didn't understand how the actual usage of the tool was or the community had the tool but the environment that the tool was set up in was the wrong one for to get the result using the actual correct tool yada yada so it gets very it's very complicated but it is makes your synthesis of your training very simple to begin to figure out why things are working and why not so that's the end of our presentation on activity theory these are big fields in and of themselves but i'll hopefully give you a good kind of overview on two design systems underpinning what we actually do in m3 it's also other stuff that you know hope there's some light bulb moments going on for people that they're actually getting a glimpse of what they're actually doing and how we're actually getting it now as i said this is a meta framework it's not a predictive framework so i can actually use a small bit for to pre- predict but our goal is to get our outcome so our outcome will be based on our assessment at the start and then the ending outcome and then we can understand this is the mediating thing between the subject the object and the outcome and all these things go into it and then we understand oh did it work did it not okay it didn't then why and that gives us this why didn't work is more important or why it worked or what broke down in the chain from subject to object that didn't make it work can be incredibly uh yeah meta frameworking so it could be incredibly useful for figuring out why our outcome didn't work and not predicting exactly our outcome because at the end of the day training you know as much as we like to say we could predict your outcome to the minute we can't really but we can figure out why you didn't get the outcome and we can enhance that or through the division of labor decide a different way of approaching it and figure out if that gives our outcome whereas if we don't have these kind of useful bits and pieces that are outlined then we won't actually be able to define this and just go oh we've done this 
and it didn't work. But it should have worked, but the squats didn't work. But they should have, but then we go to our instruments and go, oh, they were actually using squatting in weird shoes and they didn't have the internal perception to use good technique with the squats or they were quarter squatting because they didn't actually know the rules or the usage of the tools and they didn't have the perceptions to do that, so we need that, blah, blah, blah. So you can see how it can be quite expanded. Uh, Other than that, I would like to say, you know, we have our courses out that implement all of these in uh, in depth. So if you want to actually experience them in raw format, you can. Uh, we have our flexibility foundations, upper and lower. These are our foundation courses. These are one of the things that I, people think they're not that sexy, but we get a huge amount of information in this course. So we've deliberately given the theory. Instead of splitting up the theory into the relevant programs, we give you all the theory up front. So you will get that straight away. And then you get a selection of exercises, which give us our exercises and our instruments that we can begin to look at and see how we apply it. It's also the journey I've decided to bring people on on the course framework is I want to teach them and to have an experience of a lot of tools and instruments. But I also want to not spoon feed you exactly because I want people to, with this experience of how these things work in a controlled environment, then be able to go on and go, oh, I used this tool in this way and it worked then I want to see, can I apply it or extrapolate it to a different exercise or a different modality or different something and go, can I make it work there? Then with this framework and these kind of things I've outlined today, you would actually be able to break it down to yourself in training, I hope so, extrapolation. There is straight set programs for you to follow on these where you can just go, okay, I'm just doing this and that's what I'm doing and I don't even need to think about the other stuff because all of this is taken care of in the uh, yeah in the courses themselves so you know we also have front splits out if you want your front splits that will get you your front splits everything you basically whatever need to know do get front splits uh, other than that it is good to be back on bendability uh, yeah let me show my courses buy my courses uh, courses keep the podcast coming so yeah other than that uh, other than that, just thank you to everyone who has bought them. Thank you to everyone who's given me feedback on that. I know sometimes I don't reply to your feedback, but everything everything we get back is noted down. Uh, some of the other things we're going to put into the courses now is a, I'm going to record basically uh, exclusive episodes of bendability into the courses that will just explain a lot of the theory in a bit more depth. So that's to come. Uh, other than that... I have been the Splits Wizard, you have been the Glorious Range Seekers, and hopefully we will speak, I'd like to say next week, it might be two weeks. And if you listen to that in the future, it doesn't really matter, because you'll have all the episodes anyway. Uh, Other than that, I hope you guys have a great week, hope this has been informative, and we will speak soon.